Some people call it the best nine days of the year in Hot Springs. Other people call it by its more formal name, the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. Well, whatever you call it, it's the longest continual running documentary film festival in North America. And it's also the subject of this episode of Hot Springs This Week. Hot Springs This Week, a look at things to do and people to meet in Hot Springs, America's first resort. Welcome to Hot Springs This Week. I'm Neil Gladner. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is always about the people who make Hot Springs an interesting place to both live and visit. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for taking some time to listen to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at HS This Week. We're also on Facebook. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. This week, we are going to talk about the movies. Jen Gerber is a filmmaker herself, but she's also the executive director of the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. Now, in full transparency, I am a brand new board member to the film festival organization here in Hot Springs. I've only been to one meeting. I'm excited to be a part of it, but we arranged for this podcast before I was asked to join the board. So here's my conversation with Jen Gerber. Obviously, I want to talk about the Documentary Film Festival, but we really kind of have to put the genre in perspective and you come to the festival also as a filmmaker so talk about making documentaries and where your love of the genre came from well great thank you um actually my love of the genre started at the festival when i was a high school student i attended a field trip screening at the documentary film festival and that was my first introduction to to meeting a filmmaker and understanding the process behind you know, behind the scenes of a making a movie. And I just wanted to know more. So it was only a few years later that I moved to Chicago and enrolled in film school at Columbia College Chicago. Um, my major in undergrad was documentary filmmaking. So I, you know, I really absorbed myself in the, the art and craft of it. At the time, I was really focused on um, causes I was passionate about. And that's really what got me into excited about documentary filmmaking as a way to um, be a vehicle of change to be a um, to elevate a message um, that's relevant into the world. So that's where I first found you know my love for this genre. I've since then moved more to fiction filmmaking. Now I mostly write my own scripts and direct narrative work. Um, but clearly, my love for for nonfiction filmmaking is is you know, incredibly passionate. So I, you know, that hasn't gone away. Um, but you know, there's just different ways to tell stories and I, I love working with actors. So I've kind of come more towards the narrative myself, but I'm glad that with, in my life, I can, I can put on a documentary film festival and then be able to create a, other types of work on the side. In fiction film, lots of times the star is either the hero or someone who you don't like, but still has hero like qualities in documentaries, the focus is almost always the person who's the hero. Absolutely. I think the key to a successful documentary is the subject of the movie. If you have a character that is compelling, that has a good story, and that they know how to tell their story, and they're willing to be vulnerable in front of the camera, that's what creates the hero of that film. So that really is sort of, I think, the secret to making a great film is, is finding that that. It, that subject that has a lot to say and is great on camera and is willing to um, give the filmmaker access to their story. So what was the first documentary you saw that made you fall in love with documentaries? That's a great question. The, one, the first one that jumps out to me is actually Michael Moore's Roger and Me. 
uh, you know, probably early part of his work. Um, but I, I definitely remember being really profoundly affected by that film. And I loved how he inserts himself in his films, which, you know, has become quite the trend now. But at the time, he was kind of one of the first ones to really um, be part of his own storytelling. And now, I, is that the one about Roger Stone? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so who is a, a big fan of then uh, businessman Donald Trump at the time? Right. <laughs> It'd be interesting to go back and watch it now, uh, you know, decades later and see how, I, I, how I'd feel about it in context of our current political state. It'd be interesting to see. So what was it about that, though? Because that was several years ago. What was it about Roger and me that captured you? I mean, I think with Michael Moore, he's beyond just the political issues that he expresses. He's a great storyteller and he takes something that's political and can be very intellectual and maybe alienating and makes it entertaining, dramatic, and personal. And so I found I find that really exciting in his work. It can be controversial in his work too, because sometimes he maybe people may argue that he inserts himself too much into his films. And certainly as his career has progressed, we see more and more of him in his movies. But I I enjoyed watching him be an activist in his films. And I found I found that, especially in Roger and me, really, really fun to watch and exciting. And it made me want to do the same thing for the causes that I'm passionate about. So if we look at politics right now, and I don't want us to talk about politics a lot, but you can't help but but get caught up in what are, we're referring to as tribalism in politics today. Where do documentaries fit into that? Do, do they go to an extreme? Are they part of the tribal culture? That's a great question. I, I you know, When I think of our political state right now, I definitely feel that most of us, most I would say that tribal culture is fed by the media and the way that we all have our networks and channels that we are listening to. And what I think the role that documentary filmmaking plays right now in our society is that we, for the most part, have neutral voices on the front lines of the storytelling. So, I mean, no film is without subjectivity. If you know, as a filmmaker goes into um, a situation, they are still bringing their biases, their pref their beliefs into the film. That the, that you can't separate that, even if you try. But I, what I do see is that they're not they're not serving anyone else other than the story. And so I think what I the role of documentary right of filmmaking right now is that we have a chance to maybe hear another side that isn't. Um, as clearly articulated for maybe whatever networks that we're all you know subscribed to. I just wonder if if people who are, for instance, on one side of the spectrum will watch documentaries that come from the other side, and and because of the entertaining nature of most documentaries, even though they're serious topics, you get a chance to see another viewpoint if you can watch it with an open mind. I feel at our festival we see that every single day that the. The, the fact that it's a film, the fact that it's a festival, the fact that the filmmakers are here, people tend to walk into our doors with more of an open mind. And I, I find that to be potentially the most rewarding part of the of putting on this festival is just exposing people on all sides, all walks of life to new ideas. And, and because it's so character driven, it's hard to argue. It's a person and it's their real story. Um, and I would say most of our films, while they deal with political issues, aren't actually political. They're about people. And it's hard to argue with a person's personal experience. So I think it actually, in a good way, evens out some of that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, and in the film festival, for instance, there's a, there's a movie about how sounds go into movies. There's nothing political about that. Um, but it's still the story of the people who make those things happen. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say a lot of our films this year are not as politically charged as we've seen in the past. Um, I, I kind of didn't want our festival to be as political this year. It's still really relevant. I want to make clear it's like relevant. We have real issues that I believe are necessary to talk about. But I was this year, we kind of backed up a little bit on the sides of the aisle and things that are super political and just have like, okay, these are issues. Let's learn more about them. So let's talk about the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, which is the oldest continuing running festival in North America. So what do you attribute that to, especially in a town as small as Hot Springs? I think the town of Hot Springs is the reason this festival continues. Um, there is such a passionate audience base for our, for the films here. Um, and there's a, there's a really strong group of people that just believe deeply in this festival and want to see it continue. They give their time, they give their energy, they give their resources to continue this festival on an upward path. And we truly wouldn't be able to do it without them. So it is, it is because of the community support and love for this festival. So you talk to people who are involved in documentary films all over the country. Is the genre itself growing in other places in the country? I think we're seeing the genre really evolve right now over the last few years. I mean, last year we saw blockbuster documentary films. I mean, when can, is the last time that you can see a film like Won't You Be My Neighbor beating out like major Hollywood movies? Um, but it did. Um, so it is a different time in documentary filmmaking where um, they are breaking through um, into the mainstream in a different way. And I think people are hungry for content that's real. Yeah, I think with like the evolution of reality TV um, and just with our news state that people are seeking out other sources of information and documentary filmmaking provides that. So let's talk about this festival and, and taking into account that many of the people who hear this podcast may not hear it until after the festival is over. Talk about how many features, because there's features and shorts, how many features will be shown and that got whittled down from how many entries? So we will have 64, 64 features in our program. We had almost 1,100 submissions to our online submission portal. And then within the curating part, we probably watched another 400 or so features. So, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, about 1,500 films that were then cut down to 64. So when you have the call for entries, do they contain any kind of restrictions? Your film has to be about this, 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 or this, or is it come one, come all, we don't care about the topics to start? Yeah, it's wide open. The only categories we define are length, meaning that it's either, if it's over 40 minutes, we count it as a feature. If it's under 40 minutes, we count it as a short. But that's the, um, that's the, the those are the Oscar qualifying regulations. That's that, we don't put that, that's just how the Oscar accreditation works. Um, but outside of that, no, we want, we want to just see what's out there. We want to see what people are making. Um, and we approach our submissions with a very open mind just like okay, what are, what's out there and what what is right for us so from 1100 down to 64 how does talk walk me through that process how does that happen well we're very fortunate to have an incredible screening committee and a screening committee chair chris wilkes is the chair of our screening committee and we have about about a hundred volunteers that watch the films and review them they were They've always been amazing, but this year I really have to just commend them for their amazing work. They Most of the films had 10 or some of them had up to 20 views from volunteers. So what that means is they're watching the film, they're rating it, and they're reviewing it. So it helps us from the programming side to just see, okay, what are the films that our community 
you know, what are they responding to? Um, and they help us sort of separate the top tier films in our submissions for that first pass. But there's still hundreds in that first pass. They love a lot of the films. And there are great films in our submissions that don't make it. And it's the most heartbreaking part of this process. So after we, the, the final process is they, the screening committee has their meeting in July, their last meeting, and they present their top 10 favorite films in our program, each one of them. And so we combine all those lists and try to see, okay, what are the regular, what are the common films that have the most mentions in the top 10? And then from there we say, okay, you know, we look at our holistic program and what makes sense. And then we're looking at solicitations. We're looking at what films won the Sundance Jury Prize or won at, at Tribeca or Toronto. And so we are really fortunate that we have all the major winners from Cannes, from Sundance, from TIFF, all these, those big films are also at our festivals and those don't come through submissions. Those we have to invite and, and, and solicit, but we want both. We want to have those award-winning films and we want to have the films that maybe need, that are, are, are need, need a platform. And we love to give a platform to those films that are just kind of early in their festival run. So you seek some films, other filmmakers seek you and, and I noticed that some of these films looking in the program are worldwide debuts that are debuting at the Arkansas, at the Hot Springs Festival. We are so fortunate to have some world premieres this year. And that is a really, that's a, it's a precious opportunity for a festival because you're giving a filmmaker their first, their first ever screening. So these filmmakers, some of them have been working on their films, you know, five years and they've put all their, their resources, their blood, sweat and tears into making these movies. Um, and it's, it's so hard to make a movie and then to, to finish it and for it to be great is even harder. So we, we are really proud that all of our spotlight films this year, which is our opening, our closing and our centerpiece films are all world premieres. I've never screened before. And we're glad that they're, they're films that we can really highlight within our program because they are on opening and closing night. They're going to have an incredible audience and we we're excited to, to welcome these films into the world and give them a warm reception. When, when you come to the other films, Jen, ones that have been award winners at Sundance or Tribeca or other festivals. How hard is it to get them here? Do you compete for them? What's, what's that process like? We do compete for them. There's a lot of festivals happening at the same time as ours, which is tricky. So New Orleans is happening. New York is happening just before. Chicago's Film Festival, they're, they're all at the same time. So we, sometimes we're able to work it out in the schedule where we can share films where they'll play play our festival, then go to Chicago and then New Orleans. But all three of us are kind of in this beltway of trying to program a lot of the same big films and get the filmmakers in attendance. So it's just coordinating the schedule and trying to get, you know, make it work with all of the partners involved. So obviously it's not about the physical film. It's about getting the filmmaker to come to the festival. Correct. And we don't always get them uh, because of these reasons. You know, we tried to maybe Skype a filmmaker if they can't attend in person, just so they can still speak on behalf of the, their film. Our audiences in Hot Springs are really great. They're great for our Q&As. They're very curious. They have fantastic questions. Our filmmakers always come out of our Q&As and say that that was my favorite Q&A of all my festivals I've attended um, because I think our audience is really, really engaged. So we try to create that opportunity every chance we can get. So it's either a Skype for those big films or we, we work really hard to get them in person. You talk about the, the attendees to the festival, the people who come to watch the movie. So obviously most of them already like documentaries or they wouldn't be coming to see these is is part of the festival about trying to introduce the genre to an entirely new audience 
Absolutely. I mean, we certainly, when we think of our educational outreach programs, we're thinking of, okay, these are young people. And I think they probably are watching documentaries, but maybe they've never seen one on a big screen, or maybe they've never met a filmmaker um, who's made a film. So that's one way I know that we're introducing a huge audience to this, this pro the, you know, to a festival, the idea of a festival and to the filmmakers themselves. And I think they're, you know, year, year after year, we see more people find our festival. They're just kind of curious. They don't know what quite what they're in for until they walk into the doors. Um, I've yet to meet someone who's disappointed. Uh, they t people seem to be overwhelmed by the quality and by just the environment around the event. So give me a little peek behind the curtain in terms of building the schedule, because obviously it's easier for most people to see a film at 7.30 in the morning than 11 o'clock, or 7.30 in the evening than 11 o'clock in the morning. So what? how does that happen? How does the schedule get put together? Who gets the best slots? So I am thinking about the crowd-pleasing films, the films that I know our audience will enjoy, and I do tend to think of, I put those in the weekend or evening spots because I want them to be able to attend them. Um, the, the, it's really hard because some of, I think some of our, our daytime and even morning spots have some of the, our, my favorite films are in some of those spots. So it's really, really tricky. Sometimes it has to do with the filmmaker attendance. If they're coming, I want to try to put them in a place where they're going to have the best chance for an audience. I don't want them to come all this way and have 12 people in the room. So there's a little strategy with if a filmmaker's here, we're going to try to help support, make sure that they have an audience to meet. Um, and then sometimes it's also pairing. So we have two theaters that run side by side. So we don't want two films that have similar themes running at the same time. So we may have, you know, good example is on our closing Saturday. We have a film that deals with a drag queen opposite a film that deals with basketball. Like those are different audiences. They're probably not going to compete for each other. And then when people look at our program, that, that they feel that there's, they have two options that are very different. As a filmmaker who has her own preferences, her own taste, is it hard for you to be objective in helping to curate the festival? Well, I think it's hard to be objective in general um, for all of us. and We all have our opinions. I certainly try to put myself, it's not, this isn't about me at all. I am always thinking about our audience. And I'm fortunate to have grown up in Hot Springs and been living in Hot, the Hot Springs also again these last five years. So I know our audience really well. So this festival is not for me. It is for our audience. And I'm thinking of specific individuals that I know will be at our films and I know what they'll think. And I know I, there's films I'm like, oh, I can't wait for this person to see this movie. This is just for them. So I'm thinking about our audience. It's, it's not for me. I can see all the films I want. It's more about who, what do I want to bring to this community and what do I think that they're going to enjoy and what do I think will enrich their lives? So I've heard people refer to it as the best nine days of the year in Hot Springs. So over those nine days, kind of give us a taste of the audience in terms of size first. How many people will come to the festival over the course of those nine days? We will have about 10,000 attendees in those nine days. Um, it's been growing over the last couple years. It's been so I mean, maybe even more this year. I anticipate more this year. Um, if you're there on a weekend, it is a flurry of activities. We will have panels. We'll have, you know, uh, the, the screenings, the halls are filled. The VIP lounge is active. There's a lot of dialogue going on. You, you can't like walk into the Arlington and not feel that the festival is happening. And then every night we throw a party and the parties are a great place for everyone to gather into one space, um, enjoy food drinks and discuss their favorite films, what they're going to see next. And also all of our filmmakers are here and they're attending these parties. So it's a great way for our filmmakers to meet our community and for us to show them how special our, our town is. Aside from actually watching the movies, 
Is this festival similar to other festivals you think in terms of all the parties and the panels and the educational outreach and all of that? Is, is that a kind of a formula for these festivals? I think all festivals try to do all of those things. Um, we do them slightly differently. Um, I've been hearing from a lot of our filmmakers that actually our educational outreach programs are far more um, robust and in-depth than most festivals. And I'm really proud of that. I came to this job primarily I, before I had this position. I was a professor. Um, so I, And I've been teaching most of my adult career. So I certainly approach this job as an educator and have a real passion for, for youth and for training up-and-coming filmmakers and inspiring them and enabling them to create their own story. So I've built a lot of new programs since I've been in charge that um, have grown our... So I think our, our educational programs are, are, are more impactful than most festivals just because it's my personal passion. Um, and I actually, believe it or not, we our, our parties have more to offer than most festivals. Um, when, I would when I attend Sundance... You can hardly go to a party where there's a drink or you will not get a drink or a bite of food at any party. And ours, like we're in our, we're in restaurants in downtown hot springs that are gracious hosts. And they, 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 um, they really provide a lot of benefits to our audience. So actually in the VIP lounge that we have, which is for all access pass holders and for our, our visiting filmmakers, we have meals in there every single day and that you will not find that at any other festival. That is incredibly rare because it's expensive um, and it's a huge undertaking but we like that there's a common space for people to gather and have a place at the festival where they can mingle um, and dis and discuss the films that they're seeing and meet meet the filmmakers that are attending so we think it's important but that is that is beyond what most people do now I mentioned in my introduction of our discussion just for the for the clarity of transparency that I'm a brand new board member to the Documentary Film Festival. So now I've learned a couple of things, and I say brand new, I've been to one meeting. That said, I've learned things that I would have never imagined. And part of Back Behind the Curtain, making this whole thing come together, are industry professionals that are not here in Hot Springs. Oh yeah, we're so thrilled to have so many industry professionals attend our festival. Last year we had over 90 um, from industry guests, from our filmmakers to our jury members, and then just people that attended, you know, press. So there's a, there's a lot of guests that come and I think we'll, we're already on track to have more than we had last year, which is just unbelievable. Yeah, but, but even in putting the festival together, I mean, you've got a publicist who's not here in hot springs. You've got a programmer who's not here in hot springs. So how, how does that all happen? It's, it's definitely interesting. So when I, when I accepted this position, I, um, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of local support there in terms of staff. There was basically there's, there's always been about two people locally that run this festival, and I, I was fortunate that I had a, my first feature was on the festival circuit. So I was a t I was traveling the world and attending festivals, and there were a couple people that I kept seeing at various festivals that were working them. They worked behind the scenes, and I was meeting them. I was just I'd see in an email that it was the same person from festival to festival. It's like who is this Cheryl Santa Cruz? She's working every festival that I'm attending, and she's awesome. So at the last festival that I attended and I met her, I was like, okay, who are you? What is it you do? And I think I could really, I think we should work together. So, um, I recruited her from our, our associate director. Now she's now our associate director. I recruited her from by, by being a filmmaker at attending festivals. Um, I am fortunate that I do attend a lot of festivals because I am a filmmaker and also, you know, as the executive director of this festival. And I, I think it's important that our presence is, um, is out there in the in the film festival world. So I have really aggressively recruited um, staff and programmers from all around the country. So besides myself and our managing director, who are based in Hot Springs, 
our, the rest of our staff, which is 20 people, are all between New York, Chicago, and L.A. And that's relatively new for the festival. That's true. That I have brought that that aspect to the festival since I've been here. Uh, but I think it's important. We also we have ambassadors now for the festival in all these major cities. They attend other events. They're meeting people. They're talking about our festival. So it's helping to get our word out, uh, which I think is really important that we have a pre- presence in those big cities. Do those professionals who are on the film circuit give you and the board a different view, a different uh, view of the potential of the festival, a different way to look at the festival? Absolutely. We're always learning what other festivals are doing and we're borrowing from each other. So, you know, we're constantly saying, oh, I saw a festival announce their panels in this way or do this kind of panel. How can we, do we like this idea? How do we incorporate it? How do we grow on it? So they're constantly feeding new ideas that, you know, I, I don't get to attend as many things because I'm in Hot Springs that they do, that I really rely on their, the, the, the experiences that they're having in the industry to help build our program. So I'm really proud to say that our programs are in par with festivals. Like our, our director of programming works for Tribeca, she works for Telluride, she works for Doc NYC. So we're seeing that level of curation at our festival as well. Now you mentioned you started going to festivals when you had your first film. What was your first film and what was it about? Um, my first film was called The Revival. It was based on a play, actually, and the playwright's from Hot Springs. And um, But we met in New York. Um, he, I met when... I met him during a, a, an opening of his off-Broadway debut of a play that he'd written about Hot Springs. And so we've become collaborators ever since. Um, the play deals with um, a young pastor who's inherited his father's church, and he's going through a crisis of faith. So it deals with religion. I grew up in a very religious community. I grew up you know, attending church, and I was in a, for a long time I was actually attending a private school, a religious private school. So I've had my own spiritual you know, qu- quest in the, this, the film, Definitely follows a character who's um, facing some questions about his faith and trying to lead his congregation and and honor his father's legacy with his church. So it, it definitely can. It's not for everyone if it, if you don't want to go down that road of um, questioning faith. But um, it definitely is a film I'm really proud of, and um, I'm happy to see that it has found a life outside of you know my apartment. <laughs> so so Jen, now that you look back at that film as an example with a little bit of time for reflection. Do you do you wonder to yourself a little bit? Gosh, this could have been a a documentary, or it could have been a you know real uh, based on true life kind of more of an entertainment feature. Or do you think about that at all? I do think about that. Um, actually, since it's come out, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and or r- anonymously written written me online or the actors in the film and just said, um, "This story is my story. You have no idea like how how much." You know, the things that happen in this film are, are very close to home for me. And so I've, I have had a lot of people come forward and express that they feel that, you know, it's, it's a controversial film. Not, we also get the other side of it where they're, you know, disturbed and upset about the film. But for the most part, people are um, engaged with the conversation that the film starts. Certainly in Arkansas, I had several people come up to me and say, thank you for making this film. Um, I've, I, I feel like these issues need to be brought to light. So... No, but you produced it as a documentary, right? No, it's a fiction, it's film. A fiction film. Yeah, okay. it's with actors and script. Like I said, it was a play first, so it's a That's script. Right. Yeah, so it's a fiction film. I, I, I don't know. I mean, for it to be a documentary, I would need to take one of these people's real story and say, okay, let's tur- let's tell that that real story. Um, you know, I don't I don't know that I need to do that now since there's this film out there. But you know, you have to have that that first. You have to have that real life person that you're like, okay, I want to tell your story. And if that happens, I would be excited to step into that. 
do you ever see documentaries that just, and I'll ask you for example, so that just really surprise you? You learn something in the documentary, you learn something in the film that really blows you into. I would have never thought. Oh, for sure. That happens all the time. I mean, that's what's, that's what's fun about a lot of the films at our festivals, that they have some twists you wouldn't see coming and that they are, they're taking you deep into a very specific worldview and a, and a personal experience of the characters. So that happens all, all the time. And, yeah. So let's go back to, you mentioned the film about Fred Rogers. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people watched that movie and had no idea about what was going on in his life at the time. I think we took for granted everything. Yeah, I mean, we just kind of watched the show and um, take it at face value. And I, I think that film moved people in ways I did not anticipate. I mean, you can't. I, I was at Sundance when it first premiered, and you could always tell who had just come and see to, or uh, finished seeing that film because they were bawling their face off. So certainly, his story really resonated with people and continues to. And now there's, you know, Tom Hanks is starring um, in a fiction-based film about him, which I'm sure we'll we'll see at the Oscars this year. I have a feeling it's on that path. And then another huge film last year, RBG, the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was here in Arkansas for a speaking engagement not long ago. Was that a film that was driven by her popularity, or did the film help drive her popularity? What do you think? I think the film was driven by her popularity, because she has had a long career and a legacy. There certainly does seem to be some, you know, in the last couple years attention to her, but that film was in wet, well in the making before we sort of saw her resurface again as a bit of more of a, almost a pop icon. Um, but she's, I mean, she's been doing meaningful and important work for decades. So that's certainly, um, the film is just here to tell that story, but she certainly seemed to pop at the, it all kind of came together at the right time. I feel like her rise in the, in the or re, you know, resurfacing, I think in the public pop culture um, presence was new and then the film happened to just sort of be at the right time where that was happening yeah and, and it also came the film came right smack in the middle of the me too movement so it caused a lot of people to be thinking differently about feminism that is absolutely true too i think that all that had played into the 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 success of that film. Um, plus, she's just an incredible character. I mean, aside from all of those things happening in our world, she's a really dynamic character and has an amazing story to tell. So, and granted, some folks will, again, be hearing this podcast after the festival, but three or four films that you're really excited about for this year, even if people couldn't see them at the festival, you think they should, they should seek out on their own? Um, the two I will start with, um, they're actually in our international program. Um, the, the film One Child Nation will be screening at our festival, and the, the filmmaker Nan Fu Wang will be attending. This film has had probably the most buzz of any documentary this year on the festival on the festival circuit. Um, it's kind of the front runner right now for the Oscar, not just nominations, but win. So we'll see. Obviously, we'll be pulling for that film. Um, but it's what, what's it about? Um, and this is the, I haven't actually seen it, so I get to see it at the festival as well. But it deals with um, the situation in China, dealing with the limitations around having a, a one-child home and some of those things. And so, and the filmmaker, it's she's very, it's very personal to her. She inserts kind of the way we were talking about Michael Moore, inserts herself into the story, and she's also telling a very intimate story that is in a high-risk situation, and her filmmaker, her subjects are at risk by telling the story. So it has. Um, 
Um, a lot of like it, it from what you know. Obviously, I get. I'll have to see it. This is a film because of its nature. Our programmers have seen it at other festivals, and they they pulled it. But we don't have like they don't have links of it where we can watch it. So I'll I'll have to wait to see it at the festival, um, which isn't you know fine. That's a fun for me too. Um, so I you know I can only go into so, so much into depth about it. But I do know that it's the front runner for the Oscar, and that it's been a film that you can't go to a festival and not have people talking about. And when they do see it, they're just lord by the story and her access to the story so what's another one you like okay my personal favorite film and this this definitely is a subjective part of the of you know the person talking but um i grew up here in hot springs as a runner i was i was on the uh, lake hamilton cross-country team with coach called carl coons i was so fortunate to have him as a coach and so there's an there's a film that just for me is really incredible it's called the runner and it follows a young kid who was um in sudan during the civil war and was as a refugee placed you know moved to the states and um, relocated to new hampshire and and didn't speak any english he's like a 10th grader in a high school and it enters a whole new world and just trying to make sense of his life and really didn't have a place to belong and then you know in throughout the course of the film his pe teacher sees him running and class and he's like oh my goodness this kid is amazing and essentially trains him to be a runner and he continued he just you know it's like becomes a national championship and ends up in the olympics and what's interesting is that it was during the that whole whole crisis in sudan so at that time there the division had happened where south sudan was established as a nation but then they didn't have an olympic committee at that time so he didn't have a country to represent at the olympics so it's there's all this these stories about when he was first completing the olympics of he was a um an a runner without a country and he had to run. And so it's very, it's a really, it's, it's like chariots of fire um, kind of story of just this kid who, who um, his talent propels him forward and the, all the ups and downs on his journey. And so I, I find it just so I, I, I was just bawling at the end of the movie. It just, it just touched me personally. And, you know, as a runner, you just, I'm into that kind of a story. And then I, I noticed, now maybe I'm sensitive to it because of what I do for a living, but there's a couple of different, features about journalists in a time where we're so the, the journalistic world is somewhat polarized but there's one about mike wallace the former cbs newsman who was on 60 minutes and one about newspaper columnist molly ivins um i'm interested in the discussion about having two films about journalists in the festival yeah it's a great point and they're all in the, they're both on the same day too they'll be screening on the same on the first saturday of a festival um they're both first off just incredible films and so that that was you know we want to make sure everything and every pro film in our program is outstanding and they are i saw the mike wallace film at sundance this year and it has just stuck with me it is it's gripping it really it it takes you through sort of the evolution of the media market and news media he really you really sort of see the the role that he played for better or worse in the way that he interviewed his subjects and um kind of made news entertaining in a way um but it's really I think our audience will really, really love that film. And then the film about Molly Ivins, um, what's fun about her story, because she's so, not only is she so funny, she's so witty, she, she's so sharp. The film is has a, a great sense of humor about it. Um, but she's also Southern. She's from Texas. And there is, I love that we, through this journalism, journalistic lens, we also feel a, a bit of this region represented in the, in the media in that way. I'm gathering, and I've seen the preview of that movie, is that, 
maybe the closest thing we have to a comedy in the festival this year? Well, we also have a film that actually screens right before that that's called Funny You Never Knew. And yeah, and that's about the history of comedy and TV. So uh, we have a few, there's there's some levity throughout our festival for sure. Um, that's not the only one, but that one's directly about comedy and um, features a lot of comedians and it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun film. Let me come back as we wrap up to something you mentioned earlier, and that's the Oscars, because part of this festival is Oscar qualifying. What does that mean? So um, it's it's a it's a rare um, qualification status for a festival to have. We're one of 38 festivals in the world that have that are Oscar qualifying. So we're Oscar, Oscar qualifying in the short documentary subject category. So basically, with our jo- short documentary subjects, whichever film wins best short documentary, they're eligible to be nominated for an Oscar. And these shorts have 38 chances to not only get into a festival, but to win. And by winning, they're eligible to be nominated. And we've been really fortunate over the last couple of years that we've seen films in our program that have been part of that, that have gone on to win the Oscars. So we get, as a festival, we get to play our own part in that Oscar nominating and hopefully winning uh, process. So. so what is the process for deciding who wins best short at this at this festival sure so we actually we don't decide that as a staff so what happens is we bring in jury members and all of our competitions are juried by outside industry experts and it's by an industry panel so they come in they watch the films um, at our festival some some of them have to watch ahead of time but a lot of them they try to see them at the festival with an with our audience they deliberate in person and they decide which one they believe is the pick. So we we are excited to find out. We don't know. We let them decide. We want it to be coming from the industry, um, not just from. We're obviously part of the industry too, but you know we also have our own feelings about things. So we want it to be an outside source that helps us pick our. And that's how it's normally done in festivals. I, that. So so I have to wrap up with with this. As a filmmaker, do you sometimes at night when you're by yourself think about? the morning that you get a call that the nominations are out and Jen Gerber's name is there? Oh, I've, I feel like I'm pretty far from that uh, that call, but I hope I mean, maybe someday, you know, it may be a couple decades from now but before we get there. My thanks to Jen Gerber for spending some time with us for the conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are going to attend the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, know that it starts Friday, October the 18th and ends Saturday the 26th. There are so many wonderful films, over 60 feature films as you heard. If you'd like more information, the Documentary Film Festival's website is hsdfi.com. I.org. You can see all the movies there, the shorts and the features. You can also buy tickets there and get all the information. And as Jen said, there's also parties and, and a number of activities that go on workshops. So you can hear some of the filmmakers in Q&A. So it's really, as many people say, the best nine days of the year in Hot Springs. Speaking of things to do in Hot Springs, our partner is Visit Hot Springs. You can look at their website as well. Lots of activities there. In fact, we'll do the activities in a moment with Jennifer. But let me remind you that if you go to their website, you'll see information on lodging, on restaurants, on the activities that are going on, a full calendar there. All of that at hotsprings.org. So once again, we reached the use by date on our podcast because going forward, Jennifer and I will be talking about things that happen between now and the first week of November. So if you're listening to this Thanksgiving and beyond, everything here will be dated. So at the sound of the ding, just feel free to move to your next favorite podcast. You want a ding?
Ding. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now Jennifer Bailey from my sister station, 105.9 KLAZ, who is all things social. (laughs) (laughs) The social queen. Indeed. The diva. Let's get going. Running now through October 13th, the Hot Springs Pocket Theater presents one of Agatha Christie's most popular mysteries, The Mousetrap. This show is best known for its twisted ending. Call the Pocket Theater for tickets. October 11th and 12th, second annual Hot Springs Baseball Weekend. You can meet some baseball legends like Ted Simmons, Steve Carlton, and of course, pitching great Al Roboski will be here. It's all free. 3212277 tied, of course, to the great baseball history we have here in Hot Springs. Fantastic. Saturday the 12th, Garvin Gardens invites you to celebrate fall. If it ever gets here, hopefully it'll be here by then. By the time this podcast hits the air, it will be cooler. I promise. Thank goodness. You promise. Because the day we're recording this, it's 93 degrees. (laughs) It's so stupid hot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But Garvin Gardens is going to invite you to celebrate fall because by then it will absolutely be here. They're going to have the garden spruced up with mums and pumpkins galore. It's going to be amazing. They'll have a children's craft booth, a haunted depot, and it's free for members. It's only $15 for adults and 5 bucks for kids under 12. Also on the 12th, if you're not into flowers, maybe you're into big guys wrestling. It's the Championship Wrestling of Arkansas. The heavyweight champions are coming to town, so maybe you'll know these names because it's Lloyd's Rumble Battle Royale, where Buff Bagwell meets Matt Riviera. And the Pope Elijah Burke collides with Barrett Brown. Tickets are anywhere from 15 to 50 bucks. It's wrestling at the convention center here in Hot Springs. And you did all of that with a straight face. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, thank you. On Sunday the 13th, another full moon ride at the Northwoods Trail. Meet at the trailhead at 6 p.m. Bring your own bike and helmet, of course. It's a beginner to intermediate no-drop ride with grilling and tunes after the ride. Yeah, folks who do this say they have a great fun. Now, it was the subject of this podcast, but just in case you somehow missed it in your calendar of events, I've got to mention it again, the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. Many call it the best nine days of the year in Hot Springs, October 18th through the 28th. Information at hsdfi.org. Saturday the 26th, 10 bucks gets you into the Spa City Rocktober Showcase That's a great name. Live bands all day long, food, adult beverages for sale, and 20% of the money goes to local charities, and it's downtown at the Farmer's Market. And then October 29th through 31st, the 5A State Volleyball Tournament is at the Convention Center. November 1st and 2nd, Jen, it's the 23rd Autumn Hot Springs Haiku Conference. This is free. The information is at 501-767-6096. Watch this. You can come and see the 17th century Japanese poetry. Wow, nicely done, sir. Impressive, huh? You give good haiku. Thank you. (laughs) Plus, lots of live shows in town every week. Hot Springs Bathhouse Dinner Theater, The Magic of Maxwell Blade, and Magic Screams each weekend through Halloween at the park. All of those are paid admission. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. 
So at this portion of the podcast, every week we do talk about water conditions. There's not a lot to talk about this week, but I stay in contact with Entergy Hydro. The biggest thing is the reminder that starting November 1st, they'll have the annual lake drawdown. That's where Lake Hamilton will go down this year. It will be going down three feet. So it goes down six inches a day until they get down three feet. So keep that in mind if you are one of those who lives on the lake, has to be concerned about your dock. And if you want more information from Entergy Hydro, just go to Entergy and look for life on the lake and you get information about flow releases and all of that from Entergy Hydro operations. So that wraps up this episode of Hot Springs this week. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Jen Gerber from the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival for spending some time with us and my colleague Jen Bailey as we run down the events every week. And to you, I appreciate your listening. I appreciate your notes. Follow us on Twitter at HS this week we also have a following on facebook and look for your comments there love to hear from you with any ideas about people you think would be interesting to hear from on this podcast hot springs this week is a presentation of kzng news talk radio in hot springs thank you again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode